Hello, welcome to Monday Night Study. I'm grateful that you all joined us. My name's Adam. If you didn't know, uh, you probably did, but I felt like introducing myself tonight. I am excited to be beginning a new series on the book of Genesis. And we did Exodus. Many of you all joined with me in on Exodus and had a couple of comments about we should do Genesis. Uh, I talked a little bit about, about Genesis last week with Cain and Abel. So I thought I would back up that Genesis story and begin at the beginning. So tonight we'll be talking about Genesis and something that I call the undivided kingdom of God. And uh, I will get into that in just a few minutes. Um, I've got, uh, if you're new with us tonight on Zoom, or if you're watching us online on Facebook or YouTube or my website, adamschindler.com, um, I've got people with me on the call. Uh, we've got a Zoom meeting that's going in the background, so there'll be some Q&A times probably near the end, uh, or maybe as we go along. So if you hear other voices, that are the people that are joining me on Zoom. If you want to get a Zoom link and participate in any of these studies, go to adamschindler.com. Uh, later tonight, I will be putting up the link. If you want to join me on these Zoom meetings, have a number that you can text uh, and join us here and get the Zoom links if you want to participate. But you get everything streamed live on YouTube and Facebook. You just don't get to ask questions. Uh, although I'm pretty uh, squirrely, I read a lot of comments. So if you type in a comment, I will probably see it, especially if it's funny and it distracts me. Um, so I'm not sure about YouTube. YouTube is telling me there's some bitrate problems. So hopefully y'all can hear me on YouTube. Yeah, Melody, you're the you're the one that always makes comments that I see uh, that squirrels me out. So I just saw one of yours. So uh, great. Well, would you guys pray with me? Um, I am. Uh, I just returned from Guatemala. Uh, went there on a trip and met with a handful of people, met with pastors from around the nation there, prayed, did a prophetic governmental um, spiritual conference. We'll be giving you all some more information about that on World Prayer Network on Wednesday this week. Um, so tune in there. I won't, I won't spill the beans on my own page. Um, but that was a wonderful time, and I'm very encouraged by what I see the Lord doing and what the, what the church in Guatemala is doing. And... Um, there's a lot of really good stuff going on. So, but it committed me even, even further to the reality that this is a time and a season where we need to be pressing in both to the word and the spirit of God, that we need to understand both his heart, his character, his nature, and his activity, you know? And so I, I, I spend time during the week and I commit to an hour and a half to two hour lecture on the biblical stories um, on Mondays because I think it's important that we dive deeply into the text. So this is not a short 15-minute shareable, five-minute soundbite that you can share on social media. Um, if it were, you already would have dropped off by now. So we are going to dig into some really interesting, in my opinion, and deep pictures about Genesis. We're only going to get like eight chapter or eight verses in tonight. So if you guys would pray with me and we'll get started. King Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, that your life 
is still moving in the earth, Father. And even when we can't see you, you're working. You never stop working. You never stop moving. You never stop expanding the the kingdom of heaven. The government of God is constantly expanding into the hearts and the minds of people. And Jesus, you said to go into all the earth and to make disciples of nations. So Father, teach us as disciples of Jesus to be disciplers of nations. Teach us how to move in concert with your voice, your word, to move that out into the world, not to bring righteous condemnation and judgment and our religion's right and your religion's wrong, but to bring the kingdom of God that is not divided by party. It's not divided by race. It's not divided by national boundaries. It's not even divided anymore, God. Teach us how to bring your undivided kingdom of heaven into the earth. We ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation tonight to be on this call, to be on the recording, so that the Spirit of God would give life and breath and interpretation and activation into the words uh, that are spoken tonight. We bless you, Jesus. We thank you, living God. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I wasn't going to do this, but I... We got to do this because I'm feeling it. Pray with me for Jerusalem. You all know that there are rockets being launched into Jerusalem. Sirens were sounding in the Knesset today. It's Jerusalem Day and all hell is breaking loose. Rockets haven't been launched in Jerusalem since 2014. At least the sirens and Iron Dome hasn't gone off. There is a strong connection between The current American administration, the activity in the Middle East in Jerusalem, the timing of all of this stuff right now. So just pray with me. King Jesus, we declare your life and sovereignty over Jerusalem and over Israel. Father, and the Israeli people, both the Jews and the Arabs, Father, is that so many people, both Jews and Arabs, are caught in the crossfire of demonic agents and evil in this earth that wants to steal, kill, and destroy the heritage and the inheritance, God, of your chosen people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish nation. Father, we do pray in Jesus' name for the protection of Jerusalem and all its inhabitants, Father. We command an end to the rocket barrage in Jesus' name, and we ask, God, that you would give the leaders in the nations strength, courage, moderation, but clarity in this hour. We ask for moral and spiritual clarity for the leaders who are making decisions in the middle of an Israeli government that has been almost dissolved again, maybe for the fifth time in two and a half years. They'll go to elections, God. They're vulnerable, and we ask God for the shepherd, the shepherd of heaven, to come and lead his people, to lead your people in Jerusalem, to lead your people in Israel, to lead your people, to protect them from the demonic and evil assaults, and to give wisdom in the nations. We ask these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Okay. Oh man, I got tons of qualifiers in my head just because, well, I'm not going to do it. All right. Well, tonight we are talking about the Genesis. Um, And I put the the in there on purpose because this is about the origin. It's not just about origin or the beginning. It's about the beginning in the beginning. And I kind of linked that up because I really love the book of John. He's the philosophical one. Um, But in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. So this is about the beginning. And I'm going to do at least four. I've mapped out four ideas 
You could certainly go on Genesis for quite some time, but there's four big ideas. I may do more than that. Um, tonight, we are doing the first part of Genesis, an undivided kingdom of God. And we're going to be talking about in the beginning and the pictures and the creation of the heavens and the earth. We'll get up to day two uh, today, and we will then go forward from there. So, by way of a... By way of a qualifier, I believe that Genesis is uh, most likely Genesis was written after the events of the Exodus and after the Exodus was penned. Uh, of course, it's a scripture. Uh, the Bible is full of, you know, contention and different scholarly opinions. So there's various various opinions. But I believe that this Genesis account is created or written down after chronologically in human history, it's written down after the Exodus, although it retells the stories of the things that led up to that. But it appears, and it seems to me to be pretty well established, that with the creation and the writing down of the Torah uh, at Mount Sinai and all of the commands and the organization of Israel as a nation and a people chosen, set apart by God, that all of those things, those things happen, and then they set about recording the origin story, recording the revelation, recording Genesis is the history of the patriarchs, right? I mean, we get Adam and Eve and the creation narrative in one, two, and three, um, and the fall and all that stuff. And four, we get Cain, and now we're moving into rapidly into the patriarchs. We get there by chapter 12 and the next 30-some, 40 chapters of Genesis are all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph leading into Egypt. So this Genesis story is um, an important one because it lays out a uh, an ancient Eastern Hebraic perspective on, on the origins of the universe. And when I say the origins of the universe in the beginning, I don't believe that the Genesis story was intentionally authored to articulate the material origins of the universe story. What do I mean by that? I don't think that the Hebrew authors some 2,500 years ago, perhaps, um, is there problems with Zoom? Oh, well, I'm seeing Facebook messages and it squirreled me out. Sorry if you had problems getting on the Zoom meeting, y'all. Um, not sure what's going on there, but I'm going to keep going. Put your comments in Facebook thread and I will get to them. But what I was saying about Genesis is that I don't believe that the Hebrew author some 2,500, maybe 3,000 years ago, when this was written, I don't think they were trying to give a scientific, materialistic physics, quantum physics story about how the universe was physically made. Now, I'm a creationist. I believe in intelligent design. Um, there's a lot of taking the biblical narratives and expounding with our modern understanding. But I don't think that the Hebrew authors were trying to tell a material origins of the universe story. Okay? That doesn't mean necessarily that it's not. But it does mean, in my opinion, and I could lay this out in a much longer explanation, that the, that the story of Genesis is trying to communicate a little bit of a different point. Okay? 
And over the next couple of weeks, I'll be laying out what I think that that is. And next week, I'm going to talk about what that is in particular. But I bring that out tonight to just kind of set the stage is that uh, if you are hoping for um, some interesting historical look at dinosaur footprints or six-day literal creation narrative in Genesis, um, that's not something that I'm going to be doing on this study. Again, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's bad, uh, but I'm not going to be focusing on that. I am going to be focusing on what I consider to be the primary story throughout Scripture, and namely, that is a temple story or a tabernacle story. It's the story of God creating a sacred space and then filling the space with his presence. Okay, It is the story of God reaching into humanity creating unity and connection and intimacy with his children, and then setting the world back in its proper structure after the Great Rebellion. So that's the grand narrative of Genesis, and um, we will be unpacking that over the next couple of weeks. So tonight we are going to be talking specifically about something that relates to what is called the firmament. So I'm going to get into it tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in, oh, there we go. We're going to be in Genesis, Genesis chapter one, one through eight. And then I'm going to be all over the place tonight showing you um, some interesting connections. So if you have your Bibles and your notes, you can do that. Also, last disclaimer, uh, as soon as this broadcast is over, about 10 minutes after it's over, about 10, maybe 10, 15 p.m. Eastern time on May the 10th when we're recording this, these notes will be up on my website for downloading. So the whole PDF, you can go and get it. Uh, so if you're watching this um, live, it'll be up in about two hours. If you're watching recorded, go to adamshindler.com, click on the image on the homepage and get the PDF notes. All right. So let us begin in the beginning. This is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay, so the first thing we want to look at here is that in the beginning, there is a statement that God was the one that created both the heavens and the earth. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What are the heavens, and what are the earth? Okay, we think we kind of know, right? We live in earth. That's that's a little bit easier to define than heaven or the heavens. It's a plural. The Hebrew is plural there. He created the heavens, not heaven, which is in our, you know, colloquial cultural views of all of this stuff. The angels sitting on the harps, sitting on the clouds, playing their harps, the little, you know, 15th century pagan cherubs. You know, that heaven is the place where God sits with just the bottom half of his body. If you watch The Simpsons and, you know, meshing out judgment to people from this vengeful position. Like, there's so much that we don't know about heaven. But we know enough about heaven from the scriptures 
for me to confidently say most of what people know about heaven is wrong um, in culture, you know? Um, and so I'm wanting to try in this Genesis and in this study tonight to correct a little bit of that, not so much as a definition of what heaven is, but I want to talk some about the relationship between heaven and earth because God creates the heavens and the earth. Okay. And the earth was formless. Okay. It means void. It was chaotic. It was an empty darkness. Okay. Now the scripture does not say that the heavens were formless and void. It says that the earth was formless and void. Okay, so something was going on already in the heavens, and God creates, once the heavens are made, there is a heaven or the heavens that exist, and God creates out of the formless void, the emptiness, God creates the earth. And this happens through the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit hovering over the waters. The word there literally indicates a vibration, you know, that the Spirit of God is vibrating over the waters. And the waters for the Hebrew were always chaos, okay? Waters were dark. They were unexplored territory. They were wild. Um, regardless of what you think about Jesus and his disciples all being fishermen, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people at that period in the first century hated the water. Right? They weren't like the Aegean Sea people, the Philistines, or the Hittites, or some of the Ionian states that had massive trimarine armies that were terrors on the open seas. Like the Jewish people have never had a navy. Okay? Like they don't like the water in general. Okay? Um, well, they have navies now, but that was not part of their deal. So for a Jewish person to talk about the waters, this really was linking more towards chaos, unexplored territory. Okay. The waters take on some other uh, prophetic symbolism throughout the scriptures. The prophet Jeremiah uses them to talk about many waters and the fissures that come after. Um, that's an interesting study to think about what the waters are. But for our purpose in the beginning, this is chaos. Okay. So God is vibrating, his spirit is vibrating over chaos, and he is creating out of chaos something of order. God is ordering chaos and creating the universe out of it, okay? First thing he does, verse 3, he said, let there be light, and there was. I could do a whole week on that, but I'm not. We're just going to go ahead. And then God saw that the light was good. And then God separated the light from the darkness, Okay? We're going to be talking about that word separated here tonight. So let's continue on here to verse 6 and 7. We'll go to day 2. Day 2. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Okay, we're going to talk about these words, expanse and separated. So to get there, we need to take a look at what's happening here on the second day in Genesis. Okay, so again, I'm not telling a material origin story. So I'm approaching this because I don't think that's what the writers of Genesis were talking about. So I'm approaching this a little differently. And this is where you'll see it start to come into play here. So let's take a look at the second day. 
So on the second day, it says that God took the waters, which was chaos, and he separated it. And he put waters up in the heavens and then waters below. And he says that it, he separated the waters for the he separated the waters, and there was an expanse above and an expanse below. And the expanse he called heaven. Or in Hebrew, it translates a little better to firmament. If you guys are in um, uh, a New King James Version or an RSV Version, uh, the ESV translates this as expanse, but you'll see in New King James or King James the word the firmament. So God takes the waters, the chaos, he divides out the chaos, and the waters above and the waters below are divided with the firmament. Okay? We're going to be taking a look at what this firmament is and what the waters are. And it's this, it's this well, I'm not going to talk a whole, whole lot about the waters, uh, but water was chaos. Think about that. Let's go back to Genesis. So, when the scriptures say that he, uh, in the expanse, he divided the expanse, the word expanse is the word rakah. And this Hebrew word means an extended surface, expanse, or firmament. So it's, it's this idea of just this big, long, I guess you can maybe say horizon. Imagine that you're on a cruise ship or you're standing on a beach with a big wide open ocean and you see the arc of the earth. It's the horizon. It's the expanse, right? It's sort of like, oh, that's out there um, to the furthest reaches. So the rakah is, rakah is also called the firmament in the scriptures, but it's the sense in the Hebrew understanding of this vault of heaven that supports the waters from up above, and if you're if you're a googling or I guess I should say a duck duck going type of person, um, then search out the 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 Hebrew understanding of the waters. There's some fascinating ideas in there. Uh, not all of them are good. I'm not vouching for the entirety of the internet search re re returns, but I think it's a worthwhile study to go and look at that. So the firmament is this vault, and it supports the waters up ahead. So let's drill in here a little bit on the firmament, on what the firmament means and some other ways that the firmament gets um, uh, used in Scripture. This one's great. You've probably known this psalm. Psalm 19, 1 through 5. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above, the firmament, declares or proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. All right, so I guess it's one through three. Um, but firmament, the psalmist, is, is pulling out the first couple of verses of Bedashit, of Genesis, when he talks about the day and the night and the firmament and that the expanse above our heads, the fullness, when you look up to the sky and you see the heavens and you see the declaration of the glory of God, that stuff all declares the handiwork of God. But the firmament is this idea of looking up and just seeing the expanse above your head. If you've ever laid in an open field at nighttime up in the mountains and seen the seen the Milky Way in the sky in the pitch dark, it's just 
it's a remarkable experience to look at the expanse. Okay, so that's what this thing is that God creates. And I want I want to pick up the way that the Hebrew people understood this symbolism. It was a literal thing, right? Because you could look up and you could see the expanse, right? There is a heaven. Um, they probably didn't understand about ozone layers and the hole in the ozone layer that apparently got bigger or smaller. I don't know. Um, but they didn't, they didn't, we weren't thinking about that, but it was a literal thing that they could see and experience. But it was, if you think about it from a, a first century perspective, like they don't have like these pictures I have in the backgrounds. They had no idea that this is what the earth was like. I mean, this is only in the last 70 years that we even know that this is what the earth looks like. You know, that's a blip in the history. So I always like to stop and think about what it must have been like for people even 500 years ago or 200 years ago to look up in the stars and wonder what the heck is out there. What does it really look like? And this is what the Hebrew people were doing. They were articulating the immensity, the expanse, the very furthest reaches of human imagination. Who can dream and imagine things beyond the sky? Okay? And it wasn't until we went to the moon and looked back down on the earth that all this sci-fi alien stuff, you know, really began to emerge in popular culture because people began to dream past the expanse above their heads. Okay? I'm probably belaboring that point, but... It's interesting, and I think it's helpful to think about that from the Hebrew perspective. Because one of the great Hebrew prophets, one of my favorite, I think he's probably, if I had to pick a favorite prophet, I think Ezekiel would be my favorite prophet. Uh, mainly because he's he's so weird. Like he gets all these crazy pictures and visions and he talks about the angels with the wheels and the eyes and the eyes. And he's, just, he's wild, right? But he's also prophesying it at such a critical time. But let's look at one of Ezekiel's visions. Visions, one of his famous ones. And if you if you read Ezekiel one through nineteen, you'll get the context of this. He's seen the angels. He's seen these celestial beings. But I want to pick up the story here, or the the, the vision that he's having here in Ezekiel one twenty, because he says this: wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went. So he's talking about these creatures, these beings that he's seen um, in his vision. Um, and so, sorry, squirrel. So he's talking about these things that he's seen in his vision. And he says, verse 20, Ezekiel 1, wherever the spirit wanted to go, they, these creatures, went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Right, so he's trying to articulate this crazy thing that he's seen, this, this ecstatic vision, or what however he's having this vision. It seems like he's awake. So he's having this vision, he's trying to explain what he's seeing. Verse 21: When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. So he's articulated a couple of different groups. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. All right, I don't really know what that means. So I'm going to go to the next slide. He's trying to articulate this crazy thing that he's seen. But the key is here. Verse 22. Now, all these things that he says that he saw, this is where he's basically giving you details. 
And this is where it, it comes into uh, the critical point. Verse 22, Ezekiel 1. Over the heads of these living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse. That's rakah. That's the firmament. Okay? So think about the expanse. Think about the massive expanse, heavens, it's the stars, it's the, it's the limits up there. So think about the, the positioning of these creatures in the expanse. I'm going to read on, but try and analyze this while we're going. Over the expanse of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse. Over the heads, there was the likeness of the expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So above these angelic beings was this sparkling, shimmering heaven, this expanse above the heads of the angels, these creatures. Verse 23, and under the expanse, the rakah, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters like the sound of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. Okay, so we've got the rakah, the rakah, the expanse. And we've got angels. And where is the expanse? Is it below the angels or above the angels? The expanse is above the angels. And they're moving their wings, whatever the wings are. And it sounds like many waters. Okay? Now, having just looked at Genesis, this is an intentional point that we need to pay attention to. Here's the waters, okay? We've got the expanse, we've got heaven, we've got angelic creatures, and we've got waters, okay? Chaos. And this is sort of the sound like a mighty rushing water, like the sound of rushing water. It's this explosive, powerful, chaotic cleansing thing in the scriptures. So we've got the expanse and waters. All right. Verse 25. We'll keep going. And then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. So the angels are here and I'm going to lay this out for you. But when they stop moving, when they stop hovering, ordering chaos or doing something crazy, when they stop doing that, then their wings stop and they're still. Verse 26, and above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance, like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. Okay, I'm going to give you a picture, a diagram here in a second of this. Uh, Verse 27, Ezekiel 1. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. All right, so... Reading your question, Melody, does that mean the angels were in the second heaven? Hmm, interesting question. I'll answer that in a minute. So 
This is Ezekiel's vision of, I think it was God. I mean, it was definitely God. I think it was the Son of Man. I think he was seeing a pre-incarnate Jesus in this. That's my opinion. We could talk about that. Um, there's some fascinating stories. Uh, rabbinically, I'll just tell one of them. Um, rabbinically, there this this was a meditative practice for, for only very few rabbis. And rabbis that were comfortable going into more of the esoteric meditations of the prophets. And one of the things that they would do, particularly with the Pharisee sect, is that they would think on this vision that Ezekiel has, and they would meditate and ruminate on it, um, number one through, you know, verses one through 25, 26. And they would ruminate it, and they would try and picture and image out the, um, try and image out the, the, the angelic creatures, because it was raising their eyes up into the heavens and they would see the throne and they would try and get a picture of God seated on the throne in heavens. So this was, this was a meditative practice, an obscure and rare meditative practice. But there is some, there is something to be said for the fact that, that again, this is, this is, Midrash interpretation, connecting things that we know in culture. But there is something to be said that Paul may have been on his donkey meditating on the eyes of the Ezekiel scriptures, dreaming, seeing through this process when he encounters the one who is seated on the throne in the heavens and encounters him and then speaks to him. I can do a whole thing on that. Um, the connections as you read that passage, there's just some interesting possibilities for that. But I do want to lay out here what Melanie hinted at in her question, um, Melody, uh, because we need to look at the Ezekiel 1 firmament and look at the positioning of the angels, okay? Because this is going to help us. So here's, here's an angel. Um, excuse my clip art. I did this in the last little few minutes, so it's not nicely designed like most of my stuff. So this is the angels from, you can see if you zoom in, can't really zoom in. Um, you can see it's the, the four living creatures with the heads. But the scriptures say that above the heads of the angels was the firmament, right? And this is what you are picking up on. So the angels have the heavens above them, okay? And what's above the firmament? Well, the scriptures say that a throne, this is the best throne I could find, um, so it's queen, it's probably an English queen throne. Um, so the Lord was sitting on a royal, um, dining chair. So the throne, right? So angels, firmament, throne. So the indication that we get from this then is that the angels are in the earth or they're at least below the firmament. And that is a question, um, to answer your question directly, Melody, I think that the angels were in the first heaven, okay? They're in the realm of Ezekiel's vision, okay? I don't think Ezekiel was seeing a vision of the son, the pre-incarnate Christ, the son of man in the second heaven, okay? I think that this was an encounter that these angels were moving into the first heaven realms and that he was clearly articulating that these angels had come into the realm of the earth, and this is what was so remarkable for Ezekiel, and that we need to make, take note of this. This was an angelic encounter. 
Okay, some 80 plus people, I have the numbers, I think it's 87, um, but 80, 80 plus people in the scriptures have direct verbal communication with an angel. Okay, 80 some people. So angels, though, also in culture, um, we know very little about angels according to popular culture. They are spiritual beings. They do exist. I believe they exist. Um, I know they exist. And um, Ezekiel is having them. I just saw a, uh, a great question. So I was using the language first heaven and second heaven, and uh, then third heaven. These are, these are words that get attached to a concept that gets articulated by Paul in Corinthians. And Paul says that, uh, I think it's in first, it's first or second Corinthians around 10. I think it's, I think it's second Corinthians about 10. But he says that he had all of these amazing visions and that he went up into the third heavens and that he had revelation and understanding and all of these things. Um, so the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12. Thank you, Melody. So Paul goes up to the third heavens and sees God and has encounter with God and sees this throne and is in the third heavens, right? He calls it that. Now, he also writes to the church in Ephesus about the powers and the principalities of the air, okay? And that's another idea that it's, it's about the heavens, the space above the earth, um, but it's not the third heaven that Paul went to. He just calls it that. But there is another heavens where the demonic realms operate. So people have come to call that the second heaven. It's just shorthand for the realm of the demonic that isn't on the earth. It's not under the earth, but it's not in the heavens, whatever the third heavens where God is. So the second heavens is understood to be the realm of demonic manifestation and authority. The third heaven is the realm of God's heavenly authority, where the thrones where we're seated on the right hand of God the Father. And then the first heaven is the earth, uh, the realm of the domain of humanity, um, our heavens, our realm. I could do a whole night on the heavens. It's a good question. Um, so when the scriptures say that God created the heavens and the earth, uh, this is part of what's so damaging that we think heaven is somewhere else and that we get raptured to that place off the earth somewhere else when we die. When Jesus says that heaven is coming to earth and it's our job to bring heaven to earth and that God is making all things new, not all new things. Okay, we do get new bodies, but God's got an incredible plan for this earth because this is his prized creation. And heaven is coming into the earth in ever-increasing ways. That's what we're talking about tonight. So if we think that heaven is some other place, you know, where, where we could get, you know, left behind if we don't believe the proper theology. Um, I don't want to get into rapture theology and that stuff, but... That's the third heaven. Third heaven, God's glory. Second heaven, demonic authority. First heaven, human project. Um, so, in this particular case, we're just going to leave this at heaven, okay? So, we'll divide this out. Never mind the second and third heaven conversation that we just had with ourselves. Um, heaven is above the firmament and earth is below, Okay? So this is how Ezekiel is seeing this um, vision. 
Now, can you see a similarity between this and the first drawing that I did with Genesis? We should see it because it's the firmament. It's the division between heaven and earth. Okay? It's the place. It's the place where, um, well, it's the division. I don't want to give away my punchline yet, so I'm going to keep going. Follow your notes, preacher. All right. So we need to learn another Hebrew word. And this word is badal. And, um, you know, if you're a good Christian type and you don't like to use curse words, here's a good substitute. Badal. It's sort of like, uh, it means separate division, but it's, I don't know, it's fun to say. Badal. Sorry. Where's my filter tonight? It means to divide and separate, to sever. Okay? Or to separate, to set apart to make a distinction, to call out a difference, right? To separate means to move from one thing, to separate from one to another, right? To divide into parts, okay? And so God takes, in Genesis, he takes the waters and he bedalls them, okay? He separates them, cuts them in half or whatever that thing is, separates them. There's the waters above and the waters below, but the firmament is the dividing line between the waters above and the waters below. Badal means to separate, and when you separate something, you have to put in something that is a boundary or a barrier, something that actually separates them. You know, um, I used to work for the PGA Tour when I was 18. I started mowing greens for, for this ritzy golf course called Castle Pines, and we were a stop on the PGA Tour. I got a picture of Tiger Woods standing on my greens that I cut that morning. I'm proud of that. But one of the things we had to do was all around the greens, we had um, Bermuda grass greens and zoysia collars. And there's two different kinds of grass. And so what we had to do is we had to cut a barrier between that grass and uh, the, the, the approaches. And we put down little plastic barriers in the grass so the two different kinds of grasses wouldn't mow in with one another. And that was a painstaking process. But then we could take, we had, we had the barrier in between the two grasses and it was kind of like a, a little plastic V and I would come along with a, with a, you know, like a six inch um, wheel and I would stick it in the barrier and I would trim the boundary of the green. So we had this just beautiful division between the, between the Bermuda grass and the Zoysia grass. Um, and so if you separate something, you have to put a barrier in place to maintain the separation. Okay, that's what the raka is. The firmament is the barrier that was bedalled between the chaos that was in the earth and in the heavens. All right. So let's take that bedal. Let's take that bedal word and let's see another place where the word bedal is used in relationship to this. Um, let's go over here. Exodus 26, 31 through 34. The Lord says, and this is him speaking to Moses upon the mountain about all the stuff he's coming to build. Exodus 26, 31. The Lord says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Remember that. And fine twilled linen, twined linen. And it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Okay. Colors. Blue purple, scarlet, with cherubim, angelic creatures, okay, worked into the threads. 
32. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So take it through the veil inside. And the veil shall badal, separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Okay, so here's a badal. Here's a separating. And anytime you separate something, you have to put in a barrier. Okay, so let's take a look at this. This is our picture again. It's just with different names. You're going to pick up a theme. So here's our veil. All right. This is our separator. This is what bedals two different spaces. So what is below the veil? What is outside of the veil? Well, a bunch of stuff. One of the most interesting here is the high priest. And this is a pretty cool graphic, y'all. Um, uh, I found this on the web. It's too small, I think, probably for you to read on your screens. But if you go and download the notes, this is the garments of the high priest. And each of those little lines and a verse is out of Exodus. I think it's 23. Um, and it tells you the verse and what the garments were. It's a pretty cool graphic. But the priests were outside the veil along with the altars of incense and the showbread and the lampstands and the coals and all the other stuff that's outside, okay? And so a veil is what divides and it's separate. The veil is the thing that's the barrier, but it separates one from another. So the place that these priests and the other priests would work would be the holy place, okay? And what's... The other thing, inside the holy place, there is another place. It's the most holy place or the holy of holies. Okay? And the scripture tells us what was taken in through the veil and placed in the holy of holies. Ark of the Covenant. Right? Do you all see this picture? Okay? This is Genesis 1. This is the reason, the primary reason, though there are a lot more, and I'm going to keep going. This is the reason why I believe that Genesis is not telling a material origin story, but a temple story. Okay? Because of this. You'll see it. So, this is the way, and this was the reason for the tabernacle. Why did God give the tabernacle designs to Moses on Mount Sinai? If you're with me with Exodus, we never even got there. I just ended the study abruptly by skipping over all this stuff. I'm going to pick up somewhere right now. Why did God give the design of all of this stuff to Moses on Mount Sinai? Well, I don't have the scripture in front of me, but when God tells Moses, he goes up on the mountain and God begins to talk to him and he gives them this multi-billion dollar building project for the tabernacle in the wilderness and the layout of what it's like to have worship in the heavens. And God says, Moses literally ascends up into the clouds, okay? And, and on the high plateau, it says it was like sapphire and Moses went up past the sapphire. Same thing with Ezekiel who saw the heavens with a sapphire thing and Moses ascended past the sapphire onto the top where God was in the thick darkness. And when he's up there, God is giving him all of these plans for the tabernacle. And 
The plans for the tabernacle? This is the first great on earth as it is in heaven moment in the scripture. Okay? This is the first great on earth as it is in heaven because God reveals to Moses, he unveils for him how God is worshipped in the heavens. And he says, what you see in the heavens, I want you to go down there and build it on the earth, on earth as it is already in the heavens. So if you're a good charismat and you love Bill Johnson and you've read his books on earth as it is in heaven, the first one is God establishing his heavenly tabernacle as an earthly place of the glory of God. That is the first on earth as it is in heaven. And I submit to you that we are not done with that project, that mission to establish the tabernacle of God on the earth, okay? But this picture, this repeating story, this repetitive, embodied, not just concept, but God building it literally in the middle of the people and organizing the entirety of the Jewish experience and, I believe, the Gentile experience around the tabernacle and the presence of God manifested in front of them. Although there is a little bit of a difference once Jesus comes onto the scene with where that tabernacle is and where the glory is. We'll get there. But it's the same thing. On earth as it is in heaven. Okay? It's this. But we're focusing in on this idea of the veil, the division, the separation, and the rakah, the firmament, the thing that gets put in to separate the heavens and the earth. So the veil, the rakah, the veil represents, all throughout scriptures, the threshold of our encounter with God. And that's how we have to understand the veil. Think about that for a minute. Ezekiel sees these angels and they've passed through the veil. They've come into the earthly realms, okay? And he is glimpsing them. He's having this experience because they're inside of the first heaven, the first heaven realm, the earth realm. But the craziest part of that vision is that he sees above their heads into the throne, where he sees the throne, and he gets out of his, his earthly experience, and he passes through for just a moment. He passes through the threshold of his humanity's encounters with God, and he sees the Son of Man seated on the throne, and he falls down as though he were dead, because he passed through the limit of man's encounters with God and got a revelation of the Son. Same thing happens with the high priests on the Holy of Holies. Same thing. One time a year, God set it up this way. So he sets up a division and he sets up a way to access through that division one time a year. So you maybe know the story, maybe don't. But high priests could go in one time of a year. I'm going to detail overload you if I keep going there. But this, I get excited by this. Um, because God has set up a division between heaven and earth, but he made a way for the people to pass through that division to access, to access um, God. Okay? So the veil is humanity's threshold. I've been teaching a lot, so I just want to um, uh, take a quick moment and preach. Um, what's your veil? 
You know, I mean, Paul says in Corinthians also that we with unveiled faces behold his glory. We get transformed into the image of his son. In ever increasing way, we go from glory to glory. But what is the veil? What's your limit to the encounter with God? Is it a self-imposed limit? Is it who's in the office? Who's in the Oval Office? There's been a veil pulled over your eyes now, and you can't hear or see God any longer because something has separated you out from the vision that you saw what God could do, and it's acting like a set of blinders, and now you don't have any hope. You can't see the future. Something has been pulled over you. Y'all, I'm telling you this, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but I feel this is a now word. If you are feeling like your spiritual and prophetic and heart, your spiritual and prophetic vision and your heart connection to God has been reduced because of who sits in the Oval Office or what has happened in our election as it relates to the fraud and the theft, um, if you feel that way, there's a couple options. One, There's a self-imposed veil because of your political ideology. Or two, there is a demonic covering that is seeking to steal your joy and to obscure you from seeing clearly what's going on in the heavens. And so I just want to pray right now, in Jesus' name, every demonic veil that covers over the minds of the believers to see what you're doing in our nation, in the nations of the earth, we command that down now, in Jesus' name. Father, according to your scripture, according to your word, that we have the authority to tear down strongholds that cover over our minds, that prevent us from seeing God. I command those veils that separate us from God down now in Jesus' name, I ask God that you would pierce those veils and reveal the things that have been held in darkness and secret away from the eyes of your children by the enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. Father, I pray a release of revelation from heaven right now for everyone on the call and watching later on, that they would experience the voice, clarity, and presence of the Holy One of Israel while they listen to this, that they could see through the veil see beyond the things that are keeping them from understanding the fullness of God, and with unveiled faces behold his glory. We ask you, Jesus, for this in your precious name. All right. So, oh, I have this slide in here. I think I'm going to skip this slide. I did it because I had another thing and then I took it out. Um, just give you a quick rundown. Um, I guess this was, this was connected to, um, the idea that heaven and earth are, are, well, they're pretty different, but they're not all that different. And this is, I would need more time to develop this fully without all the questions. Uh, but when God takes the waters and separates them, there's the waters above and waters below. And that gives us this picture that that there are some material origins, well, not material origins, there's there's some similarities between heaven and earth. Okay, let's say it that way. That, that it's not just a totally different place. And this is some of the similarities. There's a tree of life in heaven and on the earth, the tree of life in the garden, also in Revelation 2 and Revelation 22 too. Um, you read about that. The glory of the Lord is both in heaven and on the earth. There's an angelic presence in both the heavens and the earth. And these are no small matters. Um, This was a slide that I forgot to take out. So there you go. That's for free. Well, 
where I was going when I started praying, I guess, makes sense of where we're going next. Because what happens in Israel uh, and what's happening in our heart, uh, except for some of us that have even more clarity now after the election. Um, but what's happened is that through the process of time, through the process of getting disconnected, separated from God, running through all the things that have happened, that that the threshold to man's encounters with God is no longer the veil in the most holy place. That threshold starts to retreat. Now it's the outer court. Now it's the court of the Gentiles. Now it's the court of the women. Now it's the tents. Now it's outside the camp. Like the threshold to our encounter with God keeps getting further and further back as the veil that separates us gets bigger and bigger. And the veil that was pulled over the eyes of Israel and the ways that they couldn't see and all of the things that happened and all the things that happened in us. Like, this is a great definition for sin for me. I mean, we talked about sin missing the mark. We miss the mark and the glory that God put in us never gets to radiate, right? Because it gets just covered over and the veil which darkens us gets thicker and thicker and more and more entrenched. And this is the tragedy of sin and darkness in the world. And why I oppose political things that I do openly, not because I disagree politically, but because I believe that ideas have consequences and bad political ideas introduce death and veils that obscure people from truth. Okay, so. Israel, much like us, maybe experienced a veil that they couldn't see clearly. But then God sends some people that would pierce the veil, people that had the access because they pursued the Father's heart and they had a special calling and mantle on their life, to be sure. Those people are called prophets. And those are the ones that God opens up and they get a peek into the most holy place, into the heavens above the expanse, above the angelic presences that Ezekiel sees. The prophets saw into the realm of God's glory, and he spoke to them. And he gave them more on earth as it is in heaven's messages. Take these words of mine, the Lord says, to Ezekiel and to Jeremiah and to Isaiah and Haggai and, and Hosea and Malachi and Micah. He says to them, Take these words that are in heaven, and I want you to plant these in the wombs of people's hearts on the earth. Okay, here is one of the best lines from one of the best prophets. Isaiah 64, 1 through 3. Isaiah cries out to a rebellious house. If you're following my wife's Isaiah study, she's getting to this in a couple of weeks. It's a good one. Isaiah cries out, oh, God, that you would rend the heavens, tear them open, and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. Okay, it's not just your name known, but your enemies. Okay, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. All right, Isaiah is calling back to the mountain of Sinai. He's calling back 
when God rent the heavens and came down on the mountain and it shook with fire. It burned with fire and it shook with peals of thunder. And there was a thick darkness where God was. And Moses went up to encounter the covenant God in the midst of the heavens that were rent open. And Isaiah's crying back, trying to remind the nation, remember when God did this. This is about the nation's trembling. This is Exodus, y'all. This is when they saw God and they were scared, Exodus 19 and 20. And they put a mediator in place because they trembled before the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, we have to see this again. We have to have the heavens torn open and the power and the trembling presence of God again in the earth. Just like now. That's right, Laura. Now. Let's look at this word rent in Isaiah. More Hebrew words. Korah. This means to tear, to tear into pieces, okay? Here is the first use of the word rend or torn open, okay? This is in Genesis 37, verse 29. This is Joseph's oldest brother. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes, Okay, we got to talk about this rending thing, because all throughout the scripture, we get the picture of them tearing their garments, okay, rending their clothes, breaking, tearing apart, piecemealing, separating out, right? That's the first use in the scripture. And Reuben basically goes, ah, and tears his garments, not Hulk style, like mourning style. And this is still done in the Middle East and other places when a death and a mourning happens. They tear the garments. Okay? So this word tear um, is used in a couple of other places. So it's used in Isaiah 64 to tear open, right? But let's look at this because when Isaiah says tear open the heavens, he's not just saying separate, okay? Because he's talking about rending all of this. And Reuben rends his clothes, but here's a couple of other things. Saul loses the kingdom, it's rent from him. This word is employed in 1 Samuel 15, 27 and 28, and in 1 Kings eleven eleven. right? It's a great eleven eleven passage. And it says there in 1 Kings that on this day, the kingdom will be torn from you, rent from you. What does that mean? He was king of a kingdom, and on this day, it gets torn from him. He gets invalidated as the king, okay? Tearing of the garment is about the invalidation of a covenant or the invalidation of an office, an invalidation at a, pro, at a uh, position, or the invalidation of life. When you die, it's torn. You, they tear the clothes, right? So look at this. Um, this is also Job does it in Job 1.20. Mordecai does it in Esther 4.1. Hezekiah does it in Isaiah 37.1. These are the tearing of the garments, the rending of the clothes in agony or invalidation of an office. Okay? This is rent. I just saw <laughs> Janie's comment. Does God consider the Abraham Accords as the rending of Jerusalem? Interesting question. Not going to answer. Um, I would go too far off 
if I did. Um, so rent. Okay, now let's take a look at this one other passage here because it is about the rending of the clothes, the garments, um, the Isaiah prophetic thing. But here's another great rent, uh, rending passage. This is Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disasters. So we're moving throughout history now, and they're coming in to this time when everybody's tearing their garments and, you know, people are dying and they're just repenting with the outward things. And Joel says, look, we got to stop repenting on the outside. We got to stop that if we're not doing it on the inside. And he's saying, stop tearing apart your garments. You need to invalidate that old dead thing in yourself. You need to tear that old, dead, lifeless, godless part out of you right? Tear open your hearts. Let God remake you. Stop counting on those things. Rend your hearts, not your garments, so you can turn to the Lord. Why? Because he's gracious. He's merciful. He's abounding in love, and he relents over disaster. So this is rend, okay? And I'm going to put all this together in a nice little bow, and then maybe I'll answer the Abraham Accords question. The Q&A. Yes, rending clothes is the sackcloth and ashes. You tear your clothes and then you get into sackcloth and ashes. We'll look at a, at a good rent. So we'll go back here to Isaiah 64. When Isaiah cries out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He's not just talking about opening up the heavens. He's talking, there's something about the invalidation or the opening up. It has to do with invalidating an office or opening up things. Okay, we don't have all the information yet, but I'm hoping that you'll see it here in a minute. But this was Isaiah's cry, that you would rend the heavens and come down with your presence. Okay, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down with your presence. I'm not one that likes to cry out for revival. I got a lot of friends, but I get to this spot and I cry out for this, that God would rend the heavens and come down with his presence, that he would rend these things in our own lives that separate us, that tear us apart from the presence of God. And the presence of God would come through into our earthly tents, into our realms of sin and darkness and destruction, that he would tear those things open and come down with his presence. So, here is the fulfillment of this scripture. Mark 1, 9 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here's the moment, y'all, that Isaiah was crying out for, that God would tear open the heavens and come down with his presence, that the earth might quake at his might. 
This is what revival is. God tearing open heavens and coming down with his presence. Not us getting worked up enough so that we ascend up into heaven. It's God tearing open the heavens like he did on the day of Jesus' baptism and coming down. And the earth quakes at that. This is the moment when the heavens are torn open. The word torn open there in the Greek is the word schizo. Okay, It's where we get schizophrenic. Okay, their minds are torn, separated out, divided. God schizos, separates out the heavens and comes down with his presence. And his presence rests upon Yeshua HaMashiach, the anointed one, the savior, the Galilean from Nazareth, the savior from Nazareth. All right, so let's go back to pictures because I know how much you like pictures in this massive brain dump um, that I'm doing tonight every night that I do this. Let's look at this. The baptism of Jesus, Mark 1, 9. So back to pictures. Here's Jesus. Yay. Happy white Jesus, everybody. I couldn't find a Middle Eastern clip art. Sorry. Um, so we have Jesus. And then we have the sky or the clouds or the heavens. Okay. So this is the cloud. Okay. Um, but... It says that the heavens were opened. This is one of the interesting Isaiah, uh, um, this is one of the interesting um, pictures when people start talking about an open heaven. This is one of those moments when the heavens were opened, <laughs> when the heavens were opened above Jesus. And what comes down from heaven that passes through the firmament, through the heavens, and descends into the realm of the earth? Right? The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus, and the Father speaks out, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, do you all see this picture? This is the same picture we've been seeing. Now Jesus is in the realm of earth. The Father is in the heavens, and the Son comes, the Spirit comes from the heavens and descends into the earth. Do you see the Trinity right here? Do you see the way that God is filling all of this, that he's removed or that he opened up that division that he put in place? God separated heaven and earth, okay? The Father did that. God did that, right? But then he puts his son in the earth. The son doesn't pass through the heavens down into earth. He comes into the earth. I'm going to qualify that in a second, what I just said, if you're a careful thinker. So the son was put into the earth, born of a woman. He didn't come down from heaven, all like fully grown, alien Martian style, where he just gets bloop, plopped into Nazareth. No, he was born of a woman. He came into the earth the way everybody else did. He didn't come down from heaven. He came into the earth through the human experience. But God, the Father, opens the heaven and sends the Holy Spirit down through that opening to Jesus. Okay? That's important because Jesus does pass through the heavens, but it, not when he comes to earth. He didn't come to earth through the heavens. He came to earth through the womb, through the virgin. Okay? You ever wondered why the virgin birth? I think it may have something to do with this. Jesus was born of a woman entered into the human project, not by passing through the heavens, but by passing through the birth canal. Okay? There's so much depth in all of this, y'all. So, Mark uses a literary tool here 
and he bookends his scripture with a key concept. Okay, and Mark bookends the scripture with this word in Mark 1 9, schizoed. Okay, and when you see a bookend, you kind of want to look at the middle, but like, what do these two bookends have in common? Shows up in the beginning of Mark and again at the end of Mark. Here's the end of Mark the crucifixion of Jesus. 1533, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a, law, in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sechbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was schizoed in two, torn in two, from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that this in this saw that in this way he, Jesus, breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. All right, we're gonna have our last little picture here about the temple. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the curtain, but I want to show you here a picture um, or a 3D artistic rendering of the first century Jerusalem temple. Okay, and the scriptures say that when Jesus was crucified and he cries out, the first thing that happens, well, you read about in a couple of other gospel accounts, Mark points to this one thing. He doesn't talk about the earth splitting and then zombie Sunday like Matthew does when all the dead people come out and walk around and freak out people. Um, Mark focuses in on schizot, right? The temple curtain being torn open. Okay. And so I want to tell you about the temple curtain. Okay. Because this temple curtain was massive, and King Herod built it up. This temple is what's called the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. The first tabernacle was built by Moses in the wilderness and carried with them. Then there was a handful of other kind of tabernacles at Shiloh and Bethel, um, and then David's tabernacle. But the first temple uh, was Solomon, and then it was torn down by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, and then it began to get rebuilt. We've talked some about that. And then this was the massive temple expansion in the days of King Herod. And he built out this massive temple mount. So I can give you a ton of more information, but it's not part of um, the study. I'll do a study on the temple mount. I'll do a study on the movement from tabernacles to temples and from judges to kings. This was a key motion or key switch in the life of the, the believers. But so first century Jerusalem. But inside, if you can kind of see this golden center here, I really need to, um, that's the center of the temple. I need to see if I can get a full screen. Next time I'll have a full screen view for you. But this was the center of the temple. And inside of the temple, um, yeah, no, that's fine. So inside of the temple was this massive curtain, this massive veil. Uh, that separated it. And what was on the veil, if you remember in Exodus, we looked at it, it was blue and it was scarlet and there was a carving of a cherubim on it. Okay. Well, I want to take you to a passage here. It's from a guy named Josephus and he was a first century Jewish Roman historian. He was Jewish and then he, he was a traitor and he, he ended up writing about the history of the Jews and the wars of the Jews from a Roman perspective. 
But here is what Josephus writes in Wars of the Jews, Book 5, Paragraph 4. If you are a studious type and want to Google that, Google War of Wars of the Jews, Josephus, and you can find this. But I'm going to quote this in its entirety here, or a larger chunk of it. So Josephus is laying out what the temple curtain looked like in the first century, okay? He says, it was a Babylonian curtain, which the style of the curtain and the stitching and all that stuff, um, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jewish tradition in Babylon, many stayed behind, and there's a large Jewish population in Iraq and Iran and the areas around there. But it was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue, right, and fine linen and scarlet and purple. Those were the colors from Exodus, and a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe, so they, they embroidered the heavens on this curtain, okay? For by the scarlet, there seemed to be an enigmatically signified fire. So there's heavens and there's fire in the heavens. By the fine flax of the earth and by the blue, the air, and by the purple of the sea. So there's the heavens, there's fire, there's water. This curtain, it says, also had embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens, excepting that, that of the 12 signs representing the living creatures. So what Josephus is saying here is that in the days of Jesus, the, um, the temple curtain had embroidered on it the heavens. And this was the heavens, right? This is the picture I've been showing you. This is the temple story. This is the Genesis narrative. This is why we started with Genesis 1 and we got to the Holy of Holies and the temple in the first century, because the curtain for the Jews in the days of Jesus represented the firmament. It was the separation of humanity's encounters with God. And it was the thing that God put in for this covenant. There, may, there are probably few things, it'd be interesting to hear an Orthodox rabbi's perspective on this, but there are probably few things as sacred and holy to not transgress as don't enter the Holy of Holies. Don't pass through that barrier. Don't, you can't do it. If you go in it, you die, right? You cannot transgress that covenantal law, which is going through the barrier to heaven, except one person, one time a year. That was the covenantal command that signified that covenant. Now, we talked in the very beginning, and this is sort of, um, this is sort of the last piece to this about rending your garment, about invalidating the covenant, invalidating an office. So the, um, if you'll remember on the, the, the night of Caiaphas, the high priest's arresting of Jesus and taking him overnight in an illegal Sanhedrin trial. Okay, this was overnight. It was illegal, right? It's like stopping the election at 930 at night and having thousands of ballots dumped in random locations in the middle of the night and having everybody wake up in the morning and someone else is president. Um, you know, Jesus was doing fine having dinner with his kids, his brothers, and in the morning he's tied to a cross. I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but I'm not saying they're that different. Okay? So it's an illegal trial overnight. And Caiaphas is there challenging Jesus. Is he in front of Pilate or Herod or Grippa or, um, uh, blah, 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 I forget it up. Uh, it was Pilate. He's in front of him. 
And they're claiming that Jesus is calling himself the king of the Jews. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said it. And then Caiaphas says, oh, and he tears his garment. Well, man, it's Pesach. It's preparation night. You probably don't know how long it takes to sanctify the high priest's garment. He has one garment, and it's sanctified, and his garment is the thing that is purified, sanctified, that gets him into the Holy of Holies that he's got to go into. Although that's the Day of Atonement a little bit later on, a few months later. But he's got to oversee his high priestly duties. And what does he do when he tears his garment? Well, he invalidates his office which is fascinating. And he's doing that symbolically like this is this this Jesus is so off kilter that that he is willing to invalidate his priestly office by tearing his high priestly garment in an illegal overnight trial to send a message to all of the people that the high priest would do that because this one is such a heretic. And I have to believe that that was part of what whipped the masses of Jewish people and the Romans into a frenzy. They watched the high priest invalidate his, his, his office in that respect, symbolically, and they went after Jesus. It's the tearing of a garment. It's the rending. Well, the temple curtain was known to the Jewish people as the hem of God's robe. Okay, the hem of his robe. It was where God came down and touched the earth. Almost, right? Just like Sinai, just like all of this stuff. And it was the division between the holy and the holy of holies and the presence. Hopefully you can feel the weight of that picture now. It was the hem of God's garment. And so what happens when they take Jesus's garment and they divide it? Although they don't tear it apart, right? I'm pretty sure this is right. Oh, man, I should have looked at this. But they, they pass out his garment, and his garment is passed out. And then Caiaphas tears his garment and invalidates. And when Jesus dies, the first thing that gets torn is the invalidation of that covenant. God rends his own garment, thus invalidating the covenant that was being presided over by an illegitimate ruler at that point who had invalidated his own thing and sentenced the Son of God to death. The levels and layers of pictures in this are remarkable. So this is all about both invalidating, rending, making way for a new covenant, exposing those that are in authority that are far from God, stripping them of their authority, but also the primary picture of the temple curtain was the, the limit to humanity's access and encounter with God was now completely removed. It was completely removed. Okay? Let's look at this. There was no longer a division between heaven and earth. Jesus tore that down. He tore down the separation that divided man from the Father. This is what he came to do. And this now is where we get into how Jesus passed through the heavens. He didn't come down through the heavens, but he goes back up. Look at this. 
Hebrews 4, 14, and 16, the great high priest. It's, it purposely juxtaposed for the writer of Hebrews with the high priestly. This is a Melchizedekian priesthood. It's not Levitical. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of trouble. The Jesus doesn't pass through like this. He comes up and passes through and then goes up to the heavens and is seated there at um, the seated up at the right hand of the father. So Jesus passes through the heavens. He understands our plight, but he goes through the heavens and is seated with God at the right hand of the Father. And so this is our final picture here. This is now in an undivided, undivided kingdom of heaven. If someone could um, post the link to YouTube on the Facebook chat, uh, you could kind of tell people where we are. They can still watch the rest on Facebook or on Zoom. But the undivided kingdom of heaven, right? There's heaven and there's earth. And who is in the heavens now? Well, the Father, the cloud, right, and the white Jesus, he's in heaven, okay? Because he passed through the heavens, and he is now seated at the hand of the Father. Well, who's on the earth now? Well, now is Holy Spirit and the fire of God on the earth. And we're coming up on this next week, the disciples that are now, when Jesus does the whole thing that he's doing, but now the fire of God is on the heads of all of the disciples, so this is the work of Jesus. And now there is a heaven and there is a earth, but is there a division? No, there's not. The heavens were torn open. The veil was rent. The division between heaven and earth was removed. There is no such thing anymore as an open heaven because there's no division between heaven and earth. There was an open heaven when Jesus was baptized. Isaiah was crying out for an open heaven for the presence of God to come in. Ezekiel peered through an opening in heaven and saw the glory of the Lord. The high priest would pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies in symbolized in an open heaven. Right now, there's no open heaven because there's no division. It's always open. It's always open. There's no division between heaven and earth. Now, is there a distinction between heaven and earth? Yes, absolutely. Because earth does not look like heaven. Okay? I could go on for another hour about this. It doesn't look like heaven. Okay? But it's not that different from heaven. And the way that we understand the difference between a division and a distinction can be best articulated with remembering back the wonderful made-for-television show called Downton Abbey. It was a British television show that I really liked. I didn't like it at first, but then my wife got me involved and I ended up liking it. But Downton Abbey... The whole thing is about the upstairs and the downstairs. It's about the, um, it's about the landed aristocracy and the transition, a uh, nary period between the 18 and 1900s in England, and the monarchy and the established elites, they're up on the upper levels, and the lower house is where all the servants are. And there is something about that, um, uh, that story that's so interesting to me, because you watch the whole progression. I won't tell you the whole story, Downton Abbey. But the point is, is that, the kitchen and the dining room were very, very, very different. 
And throughout the progression of that show, the merging of the people that were downstairs, someone falls in love and marries one of the elites, and now they're in the upstairs. So they used to be below, and now they're above. What's the point? Well, in Victorian England, there was a division where there was also a distinction, okay? In our modern culture, the division between the upstairs, the landed aristocracy, and the lower class, or proverbially the kitchen and the dining room, those distinctions still exist. But does anyone think that the person in the kitchen is a lower class citizen than the one seated at the table? This is an easy question for any men that are listening. No, right? And in open concept floor plans, there's not even a wall between kitchens and dining rooms anymore. Okay, it's an open floor plan. But that doesn't mean that there's not still a distinction. You cook in the kitchen and you eat in the dining room or you eat in the kitchen, right? But you don't really cook in the dining room, okay? The division has been removed, but the distinction remains. And this is where I believe we are um, as believers in an undivided kingdom of God, that there is a heaven and there are heavens. And I believe there's a second and a third heaven. And I think it's useful to understand those distinctions. Those are different, but they're not divided out from us that we have access because Jesus passed through the heavens and tore the veil, removed the barrier. God set up a barrier so that we would find our way home. And when we find our way home, the barrier is removed and there's no distinction between heaven and earth. And I believe that it's critical in this hour that we come to understand that there is a heaven, there is an earth, but there's no division. And the more we learn how to partner with what God is doing in the heavens and make it real on the earth, the more we learn how to partner with the spiritual truth, the reality of Holy Spirit, the reality of angelic spirits, the more we're able to fully embrace the on earth as it is in the heavens mandate. Because that's been going on since the very beginning of Scripture. It wasn't inaugurated with Jesus. It was finished with Jesus. The goal was reached, but now we've got to, in chronology, continue to make it happen. So that was Genesis, an undivided kingdom of God, the first week in Genesis. So thanks for sticking with me if you made it. All of my Facebook friends, you got abandoned. I'm sorry. But if you guys had any questions on YouTube or inside of Zoom, I would love to answer some of those questions now. Zoom people, if you want to come on camera and ask your question, I'm not going to put you on screen, but I will be able to hear you. Um, or you guys can ask some questions inside of, of YouTube. Huh, the abrasive accord. Abrahamic Accord. Okay, so the Abrahamic Accord, I've gotten a lot of questions about this for the last couple of weeks um, about the Abrahamic Accord. And the Abrahamic Accord itself is neutral on the idea of dividing out Jerusalem. The language in there doesn't talk about that. Um, However, there is some concern with what people think uh, is in behind that, um, particularly now with the new administration um, that is, well, 
have their own plans for Jerusalem. But the Abrahamic Accord specifically talks about the normalization of relationships between a couple of these Arab nations, the Sudan, um, UAE, um, was there another one? Um, and it postulated, uh, and there was a map published by the Trump White House that laid out all of the different economic development zones and the lands. Basically, it's a redistricting of, of, of Judea and Samaria. And the concern is a lot of what is incorporated in that map that was published by the White House about Judea and Samaria uh, basically carves up. Most of the Bible happens in Judea and Samaria. If you don't know where Judea and Samaria is, it's because you listen to too much mainstream news and they call it the West Bank, okay? Or the occupied territories. Uh, but it's Judea and Samaria, Ephraim, uh, the land of Ephraim and others. So uh, I do think that part of that concern with the Abraham Accords is the map that was drawn out. Um, another part of that is the administration, the current administration's statement early on that they were not going to move the embassy uh, that Trump established in Jerusalem, but that they uh, were working towards, it seemed like, uh, establishing a Palestinian um some kind of transitionary Palestinian authority or consulate or the language is not clear, but that's where a great amount of concern is um, about Jerusalem and this being Jerusalem day and riots on Temple Mount and rockets being fired into Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu was unable to form a government a couple of days ago. And so President Rivlin handed a mandate to Lippin, who was his arch nemesis, um, to try and them establish a government. Just to give you a quick Israeli governmental civics lessons, there's a bunch of different parties in Israel, and they have to get together enough votes to get what's called a mandate. So if they get five if they get enough votes of their individual people, um, then they get five mandates, then they get seated in the Knesset. And I think it's five is the smallest amount. And then there's, let's say there's 18 different parties. I don't know the exact number, but if there's 18 different parties, the minimum of a party is in this is, is get seated in Knesset if they get five mandates. So they have five votes. And then some parties like the Luchid party is one of the bigger ones. And it's got 18 or 20. I'm totally making up numbers because I don't know the numbers. But what has to happen is that the people vote for the parliament, the Knesset, and they get their seats established by party. And then these 15, 20 different parties come in and they try and figure out who can compile a coalition that has aligned, aligned enough ideas to get to the magic number of 60? And if they get to 60, then they can seat a government. And then the, the head of the, rule, of the largest party, usually, is the one that gets selected by the president of Israel to be the prime minister. Okay, so the people vote for the MKs, the parliament, the Knesset members. They work for 25 some days to try and form a coalition of how many, how can we get 60 people to all agree? Once that number gets agreed upon, the president of Israel then selects the prime minister of Israel according to that setup. Well, Benjamin Netanyahu couldn't do that. And now his arch nemesis Lippin is trying to do that. That may not happen. All that is happening for the fourth time in two years. It looks like they're headed for a fifth election. It's Jerusalem Day. Rockets are coming in Jerusalem. And I think it's, it's a pretty dire situation.
It's a pretty dire situation. Um, and the indication seems to be that the, the insiders of violence are trying to take Jerusalem. You know, and there's a bunch of claims about all of this stuff, and I don't want to wade in too much on all of it. Y'all can go and read it um, and watch it because it's 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 significant. Um, and there's people way more qualified to talk about this than me. So um, I won't pontificate any further on this, but we do need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Um, we do need to pray uh, for uh for our government, for the Israeli government, for protection and all of this stuff and all of this time. So I don't know if that was a good answer, um, but. Any other questions? Julie, you're on video. You want to unmute and ask a question? I can't hear you yet. Let me see if that's my problem. Make sure my speaker. Oh, there we go. It's muted. Okay. Um, What's your question? I was wondering about the third heaven. Or the, anyway, the, the, the issue about the heaven. Um, I don't remember what it was now. I was I was gonna try to look it up in the chat because I, I wrote it in on the chat. The Second Corinthians twelve is the scripture verse. Um, Julie. <coughs> yeah. So, do you just want more information about one of those, or do you remember? Yeah, I um, I was wondering about if a particular, something in particular was in one of the three heavens, the the first, second, or third heaven. I I wasn't. I wanted yes, I did want more information. Was it like a specific entity or something? Lived where? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just... Again, this, this is... This, this. I mean, it's a good question. So to wade into it, I always want to qualify because that's me. But um, this is something... It is biblical. Uh, Paul talks about it. I laid that out, the first and the second heavens. And we can talk quite a bit about... Um, uh, the other indications about the demonic realms operating as powers and principalities of the air. But primarily, the angelic realms and the realms of people call it the throne room, the presence of the Lord, and this, you know, the, the heaven that's closely, most closely resembles what we think about when we think about heaven um, is, is the third heaven. And the second heaven is the current demonic realms. And so the idea here is that uh, when there was a war in the heavens, uh, Lucifer, who was, uh, by Isaiah's accounts, a worship leader who, when he moved, he had bells jingling on his clothes and it was beautiful. And he walked on stones of fire up there. And that's a sim symbolic wow. picture of um, the the service of the high priest before the curtain of the temple, the 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 eternal flames, the burning embers that rise the smoke up to the prayers up to God. So Lucifer was, was in the presence of God um, and mm -hmm. he was in the heavens and he decided that he didn't uh, like God being God and wanted to be God himself, tried to take that seat of authority and God cast him out of the third heavens. Now he came from there uh, 
we get more into an extra biblical analysis of this. This is not anti-biblical. There's other sources and you can piece things together. I believe it is biblical. Um, but it is um, that Lucifer then came into the realm of the second heavens. And the second heavens has sway and authority in great degrees over the first heavens. So when the earth, so when Jesus comes into the wilderness to be tempted by Lucifer, one of the things that Lucifer does is he takes him up to a high plateau and shows him all the nations of the earth and says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you these nations. And Jesus doesn't contest the fact that he's got the ability to deliver the nations to Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm going to work. The Lord says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this is a much longer conversation, but I believe Lucifer was cast out of the third heavens into the second heavens. And from the second heavens, he runs excursions, um, uh, assassination trips and excursions into the quote unquote first heavens because Jesus gave all authority and dominion on the earth to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to proclaim the liberty, to declare the kingdom of God, right? He gave us the delegated authority to do that in the first heavens. So there is a conflict in earth, which is our domain or the first heaven. There's a conflict between the demonic principalities that Paul calls the rulers and authorities of the air or the second heavens. When they come in to the second heavens, again, this is we're trying to use English to articulate spiritual realities. So mm -hmm. sometimes come in like I feel this is where I start feeling a little bit like Ezekiel that's trying to articulate his crazy angel visions. The words fail. But, you know, when demonic realms and demonic activity comes into the first heavens and starts to oppress and harass and make you sick and possess and mess with your mind, you know, we've got authority to get rid of them and to get them out of the first heavens. That's our sphere of domain. Um, and uh, if you get deeper into intercession with particular kinds of groups that do warfare prayers, there's a lot of people that have contention about whether that's real or not. I believe it is. Um, but, you know, sometimes they do what's called territorial. Um, they deal with territorial powers or spirits dealing with things in the second heaven. Um, that's a whole nother conversation but hopefully that yeah, gives a little bit of understanding about the ideas thank you i was in an intercessory prayer group where our focus was to pray and intercede for israel and the jewish people amen i was in that group for 10 years amen well now's the time now is yeah. the time so thank you for your question julie um Any other questions? I have a quick question, Adam. This is uh, Rhonda in Florida. Hi, Rhonda. Teacher Rhonda. Hi. So, incredible study tonight. Thank you so much. It really fed my soul. Good. Uh, really some eye-opening stuff. And I'm old, so yay. <laughs> learned a lot tonight. My question is, is this going to be another eight or ten week study? Because, man, you just whet my appetite to learn more about this stuff. Um, we'll see. Um, I mean, I've got, I started writing a book about all this stuff, but I got immersed in politics and governmental stuff and never got done with it. So I have a ton of material and I just thought, you know what, let's just start here and see how long it goes. So 
Well, it is more than one nighter. Then it's not just tonight. Yes, no, I've I've got at least four mapped out. Um, okay, and good. I could I could do fifteen or thirty probably, but I'm not sure I've got the stamina for that. But we'll see what one happens. One more quick question. I I posted a link in the chat about the three heavens, but uh, you know readers are done. But uh, do you have a specific resource? Uh, that you would recommend to read that's really balanced on the three heavens? Um, yeah, the Bible. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I know that's cheeky, but I have honestly never read a book on the three heavens. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't point you towards a resource. I'm, I saw the, the John Hagee ministries deal on that and then I'm going to check that out. Um, but yeah, I was looking over it a little bit as you were speaking, and I don't follow Hagee Ministries all the time, but some of the things he had in there uh, lined up with what you were telling us. So I just posted it. Take it off if you don't want to get, but it just sat there. Yeah, thank you. Okay, um, you know, yeah, that. Well, I mean, there's a lot of conversation and discussion about the third heavens. Um, hopefully, I laid out that it is a biblical idea, uh, but there's quite a bit of space in the biblical explanation for, you know, people's experience. An interpretation. This is what we have the category for extra biblical revelation. It's not anti-biblical and it's not written specifically in the biblical text. Um, all of the different definitions of how the first and second heaven and third heavens relate to one another, but I do believe it is an orthodox biblical perspective. So. Um, and not that this has anything to do with the teaching tonight, but since I am at work and I have a more powerful computer here, I had both Zoom open and Facebook and YouTube. And the Facebook feed is about 15 or 20 seconds behind your Zoom feed. I yep. thought I'd let you know because when you're advancing slides, um, yeah, so there's a little drag there. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that. Okay. I do. Yeah, it's about yeah, it's okay. about 30 seconds. That's just Facebook and YouTube. Okay. They want to be able to algorithmically listen to everything that you're saying so they can cut you off live. So, yeah. And technologically, it just takes a while. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Dawn, do you have a question? I'm asking to unmute. I couldn't hear your wonderful question. There we go. Uh, might there, thanks for your teaching, my little bit. Sure, might there be a significance in Jesus' robe not being torn by the soldiers at the cross? Yes, that was the part that I couldn't remember. I was pretty sure it wasn't torn, just like his bones weren't broken. Okay? Um, uh -huh. And a lot of times when you read in Sunday morning or people do the communion thing, that he was, you know, he takes a break. This is my body broken for you. It doesn't say broken. It says given. Okay, so there is a significance to the fact that his bones were not broken, nor was his robe torn, right? His covenant was not invalidated. Caiaphas's was, the temple curtain was, Jesus' covenant was not invalidated. It was inaugurated on that night, okay? And the bones, the bones weren't broken because that was part of God's command when you bring in the lamb into your house for three days, for Passover, a spotless, pure, blemished land. You bring it into your home for three days to get to know mm -hmm. it um, so that when you kill it and eat it, it's like, you know, you're killing a pet. But because it's got to hurt, that's part of the deal. But they say specifically not to break the bones of the lamb. And that's the, um, you know, that's the, the connection there. But they did cast lots for his robes to fulfill that prophetic word. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. Sure. You're welcome. Thanks for jogging my memory on that. 
Um, I'm going to look at, um, here's one on YouTube. The curtain was rent in the temple of God. Could that be when God caused the Jewish people to be able to recognize Yeshua as Messiah, thinking about the head high priest rending his garment um, or unable to recognize, right? Let me think through that and then repeat it out loud to myself. Unable to recognize. I do think that there is something, um, man, this is a deep question about the Jewish people recognizing the Messiah. Um, it's one that is loaded with hot button issues. It's loaded with thousands of years of um, not just theological division, but genuine persecution and death. Um, there was a range, however, that's history. Modern history is the Jewish people have no better friends than evangelical Christians. And this was something that a long time Israeli ambassador to the United States said publicly a couple of days ago, and it made some, made some waves. He said that the best friends of Israel are not American Jews. They are American evangelicals. And that Israel should prioritize reaching out not to the American Jewish community as much as they should prioritize um, reaching out to the American evangelical community. And he made some nuanced arguments there. But um, I do I do think that, why did I start talking about that? Oh, just how touchy of an issue it is around how and why the Jews see or don't see Messiah. And the way that Christians have a long time done forced conversions on Jewish people and mandated that they recount Judaism, their demonic belief in the murdering of Jesus. So it's a sticky question. That's why I'm qualifying all of that. Um, but I do think that there is, I like this idea that I'm about to share, that there is, that there's a parallel purposes working in the earth. God has a plan for his church, his body, his bride, which is the Gentile church. He has plans for the nations. He calls them specifically. Um, he's got some unique plans for the nations, but he also has a plan in parallel with the Jewish people. And Romans 9 through 11 articulates a lot of that. The mystery uh, of you know the Gentiles and the Jewish relationship and the grafting in. So when I say that there's three parallel purposes working, all of those go through the door of Jesus, but the pathway uh, to that is different. And I like asking this question, how many ways are there to the Father? Well, good Christians know there's one way to the Father. It's through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. Okay, well, how many ways are there to Jesus? an infinite amount of ways, right? How did you meet Jesus? Guarantee you it was different than how I met him. How did the, the, the Muslim, Farsi-speaking Muslims in Iran meet Jesus? Well, they sure didn't come forward, say the sinner's prayer, and get baptized in the North Georgia revival, you know? They encountered a white Jesus in their dreams and spoke to them. And so there are so many ways to Jesus, and Jesus leads us the one way to the Father, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit to lead us to Jesus. So the one way to get to Jesus 
is through Holy Spirit. Because the Bible does say that no one comes to Jesus except through the Spirit that draws him. But the pathway to come to Jesus is empowered by the Spirit, but it goes lots of different routes. That's a big biblical qualification for how come the Jews don't recognize Messiah? Well, many of them did. In fact, we wouldn't have a Christian church if the Jews didn't recognize Jesus. Okay? All of the first believers and disciples were Jewish. Okay? They didn't convert to Christianity on the day of resurrection. Okay? They were Jewish. And so many of them did. Uh, but the, the journey of the division between the church and the synagogue is, is, is a bloody one and a painful one. And you can read about some of that. Maybe I'll do a study on that. Um, that's a totally rambling answer to the question that you asked. Um, but I do think, last thing, I do think that some of the people in first century Israel, when the priest invalidated his garment and then Jesus was crucified, even the centurion, it says in the Mark account, when he saw the way that Jesus died and the things that he said in the temple, he said, truly, this was the Messiah, the son of God. So short answer to the long rambling answer. I do think that people came to know Jesus when they saw the temple curtain being torn open. I think that mattered. So, um, one last question here. When the, Jesus references the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, is this, is this above the firmament kingdom? So the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing linguistically, and this is also part of the Jewish tradition of um, conflating the two. I could give you a more technical answer. So there's not two different kingdoms, one of heaven and one of God. Those are the same thing. And the thing when Jesus is saying and that we bring the kingdom of God to earth, and that he went around everywhere. Jesus had one sermon, okay? One sermon. Lots of points in that sermon. He didn't preach every point, but he had one sermon, the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, he preached the kingdom of God. He told stories about it. He healed people to demonstrate it. He confronted the religious establishment that was thinking about their religious elitism and not the kingdom of God. He unveiled and revealed and demonstrated the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that was as close as your breath. It says, the kingdom of God is at hand, as close as your breath. Um, so, the kingdom of God, uh, it's a complicated question. It is below the firmament. And part of the reality is that firmament division has been removed, right? So now, the kingdom of God is in all of it. Okay, and that's a big part of why the division was removed. The firmament has been removed. There is no division between heaven and earth. It's all the kingdom of God now. All right. Well, I am going to cut it off because it's almost 10 o'clock. And I've been overseas traveling and I'm hot in my office. Can I make one last comment? About sure. The um, so while you were sharing, I quickly looked up the book on the three heavens. You said, um, you know, you weren't sure if there was something you could recommend. So I quickly looked up. There's it is a book again by John Hagee. Not again. Don't follow Hagee all the time, but it's got over 1,300 reviews, and almost all of them are five star. 
Um, so it might be worth looking at on your Kindle or whatever, you know, but I think I'm going to download it and look at it and read it because I want to learn more about what you shared with us tonight. And you're right. There's not a lot out there. I was zooming around and looking while you were talking. So, yeah. but over 1300, you know, on almost all five stars, that's significant. I'm going to yeah. take a peek. Good. Thank you for doing that. I may take a look at that as well. Um, yeah, thanks. it's called the three heavens, angels, demons, and what lies ahead. Yep. Okay. Cool. Done. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it, y'all. Well, thank you all so much for staying with me. Um, next week, uh, I am going to be doing one, and I'm going to be unpacking next week. At least this is what I wrote down. It may change, but um, nobody's going to actually get to the end of this video except for the people that are on it. So no one's going to hear me uh, say something that isn't true, except for you guys. So next week, I'm going to talk about the... Uh, the the home story that's being told in Genesis and lay out for you the temple stuff and go into more depth. Tonight we talked about the uh, the curtain and the firmament and all of that, but next week I'm going to unpack for you how God makes a house a home and what the difference is with that. So thank you so much for joining me and for participating. Really appreciate you all and Hope you have a wonderful night and a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.